So you know how some movies or television shows will begin like in the middle at some climactic moment and then um, and then there will be like the screen fades to black and it'll say like text along the bottom something like two weeks earlier. So I'm a sucker for like adventure movies and even better if there's a treasure hunt. Like if at some point they're underground finding some ancient ruin which holds the clue to everything, uh, I'm in whether it's a good or a bad movie. So recently I was watching a movie called Uncharted uh, with Tom Holland, um, the actor. Um, and it begins with him falling through the sky, uh, regaining consciousness. And you realize, like, he's trying to, he, like, with no parachute, he's just finding himself floating. And you realize, you know, how did he get himself in this mess, right? And then you go back several, um, I mean, maybe, I don't know how far he goes back, but I want to do something like that today to begin with the end in mind and then flash back to the beginning. So broadly, our topic today, this is sort of the, this is where we're going to climax to. This is the scene that we're starting with is something like spiritual formation through the spiritual disciplines. But I don't want to spend most of our time talking directly about that because there's a real irony at the heart of this conversation, and that is that if I said, today we're talking about spiritual disciplines, here's what they are, and here's why you should do them, then we could actually be moving in the wrong direction. So as we come to it, this is the, the opening scene that we're going to go back from and then uh, get a head start into, the one application point for today is this, receive the Holy Spirit and fan it into a flame through a counterculture or countercultural, counterformative uh, commitment to spiritual disciplines. Now, fade to black. Several thousand years ago. So the longer that I read and study the scripture, the more I'm convinced that there's really just one story that the names change, the settings change, the details change, but those are like waves on top of the ocean. And underneath there is a current. And we see that the same story is repeated again and again, the current that is going underneath the waves. And it's the story that we see in Adam and Eve, in Cain and Abel, in Abraham and Sarah in the episode with Hagar and Ishmael. We see it in Jacob. We see it in the nation of Israel, in Saul and David. We see it in the Pharisees. We also can continue through Scripture and see the same story repeated in church history as we travel from uh, Emperor Constantine up through the televangelist and modern uh, attempts to win the loss through all kinds of methods, um, marketing and media, management. So what is the story that's continued on repeat throughout history? In brief, it goes something like this. It begins with God, who despite being completely satisfied in his own self, in the loving fellowship of the three-in-one, desires to extend that love to others, to humans, who desires to bring them into his loving presence. And then in that fellowship, in that communion with him, to share in a kind of mutual delight as people worship them in their work, 
which in general we could say is to bear God's image as they take care of God's gifts. But like all good stories, this story has a protagonist. And in this story, sin is crouching, waiting to attack. There is a serpent who from the very beginning has been lying to humans, not saying, don't worship God, worship me. From the beginning, the serpent has been saying, sure, worship God, of course, but let me help you worship God better. The serpent from the first conversation with Eve has been saying, I've got some tools to help you out. And then again and again, we see people try to achieve what God has given them as a gift with the tools that are offered to them by Satan. Finally, every time we see this pattern repeat, the consequence of picking up the devil's tools is exile. So if we could just really quickly scan through this, Adam and Eve are given the image of God. They're created with it. It is theirs. And the serpent says, eat this fruit and you'll be like God. The consequence of eating that fruit was exile from the garden, exile from the place where heaven and earth meet and where they walk with God in the cool of the day. We see, too, that Cain is jealous about Abel's sacrifice. He didn't get what he wanted, from, which was God's blessing from the sacrifice, and so he's mad and angry, and he murders his brother. By the way, we can see so many copies of that first murder in all of the religious wars, people who are upset about uh, the way in which we worship God. We see the same story repeated at the Tower of Babel where people are trying to use this new technology of bricks to build up this, um, this, this tower to reach into the heavens. We see it again when, Abraham said, or when God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. Abraham and Sarah were like, yeah, that sounds great. But maybe God needs a little help getting this done. We're not sure what he really meant. And so they, Abraham has a child with Hagar, his servant. We see this with Saul's sacrifice. God had anointed Saul king. God is going to give his people victory. And yet Saul starts to get nervous because these these warring armies are encroaching. And so he makes a quick sacrifice. He's not rejecting. Do you get this? He's not rejecting God. He's not worshiping the serpent. He's saying, I want God's blessing, so I'll do the sacrifice now to get the outcome that I want. In every repetition of this story, we hear the accuser's words when he stood before God and said, will Job serve you for nothing? Let's look at one more example, and that is God's law was given to the nation of Israel. It was a grace given to them to allow his presence to dwell with them. So as Christians, I think often when we think about temple worship, we're quick to jump to like, that was a terrible thing. But it wasn't terrible. It was incomplete and it was temporary, but it was set up to be a blessing to the nation that, that they would somehow carry God's presence with them. 
We know that as much as God doesn't live in houses made by human hands, there is a sense in which his glory filled that temple. So much so that when the high priests went in, they were afraid that they might die because they were encountering the living God. So the law was not an end to itself, but it was a means of grace to facilitate among his people God's presence and blessing with them as a nation. By the time of Jesus, we read about these groups of people who had taken that law that was meant to be a blessing and they had turned it into a curse, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So these were two Jewish sects who had said, thank you, God, for this law. Now let us help you out a little bit. So if if it says don't go this far, we're going to make an extra law that says don't go even further to make sure we don't even get close to that law. They had turned this thing that was meant to bring them into fellowship with the presence of the living God, and they had made it a burden that they heaped on other people. They had done this so effectively that when the one who was the embodiment of the law came among them, they hated him. And from the day one, they sought to kill him. And finally, they succeeded in that. So do you see this, brothers and sisters, that they weren't going off to worship false gods, but the temptation all along from that lying serpent is to take up God's work, but through human means. And by doing this, to miss that the whole thing was always about being present with God. It was all about entering into this relationship of mutual love and delight. So when we see the shape of this story, as we see it again and again in scriptures, and we sort of notice the contours, then we start to see it all over the place. And we can see that this story has been at work in church history as well, and we can see it working in our own day. And so I want us to see that we are in another rotation of this story. So just as much as Adam was made in God's image, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. As much as Adam was given a job to do that he could not do on his own but needed a helper, which was to fill the earth with image bearers, the church has been given a job to do which we cannot do on our own but we need a helper the Holy Spirit, who Jesus sent on the day of Pentecost. And our mission, like Adam and Eve's, is to fill the earth with disciples of Jesus. Jesus told them to go to Jerusalem and do what? There's a few of us here. We can talk. Go to Jerusalem and, who knows? It's like Sunday school. Jesus Go to Jerusalem and Jesus. Come on, guys, that doesn't even make sense. He says, go to Jerusalem and wait. Go to Jerusalem and wait for the helper. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So maybe you see the patterns with Adam and Eve or with Abraham We have a job to do, and we need a helper. And as we look at church history, we see that in the 4th century, the Emperor Constantine was listening in to that serpent's whispers, and he said, thank you, Jesus, for this gospel, but you know what might help is a little bit of power from Rome. What might help is the power of the greatest army in the world. 
The medieval church also said, let's take up the power of the state and the economy and we'll spread the kingdom of God throughout the earth. We'll make disciples in every nation, but we'll do it in our own way. We're not so sure about this power being perfected in weakness thing. We're not so sure about picking up our cross. We're not so sure what good pruning hooks and plows will do next to swords and spears. And so again and again throughout history, the church has taken up the means of power and human innovation, and we have missed and hollowed out that central thing, which is dwelling with and being with God through Christ. And so knowing this allows us to understand our own time. And so we've read uh, Paul's letter to the the Thessalonians, um, and we see that we are not left in the dark. And so when others are saying peace and security, we have seen this pattern repeat again and again. And we can see where we are in the story, and we're not surprised. Or Paul said it similarly in his letter to the Ephesians, that we should pay attention Pay attention to the world so that we can redeem the time. And he says, because the days are evil. So where are we then? Where are we in this story? We could, we could zoom out a little bit and look at the, maybe the past hundred years or so. And we've seen um, liberal and mainline denominations take up almost like a modernistic uh, enlightenment uh, mindset. And they've said, well, thank you, Jesus, for this moral teaching Thank you for these things, but we're going to add to this our rationality. We're going to explain the scripture through our own reason. We've seen evangelical churches say, thank you uh, for this gospel, but let us help you out with some technology. We're going to throw some events. We're going to have some tent revivals. We're going to win people. And a lot of us maybe grew up in kind of a youth group culture that, that saw, like, you know what we need to do is win these kids for Jesus, so we got to have some awesome programs. we got to have some dynamic speakers. we got to have some, some games, y'all, games. <laughs> and we see today that we are in a moment that almost everyone agrees is a time of decline. So much decline that some have said the church is in a moment of crisis. And if we repeat the pattern that we've seen again and again, then we will say, how can we control this moment? How can we, how can we manage this decline and this crisis situation? And we will fail to see that the problem is that we've hollowed out the central thing, which is being with Jesus. Some of you have heard me talk about my grandmother when I was a kid and she would babysit me. She would put me down for nap time and she would pray for an hour, two hours for her family, for the souls of her children and her grandchildren. The power of that far surpasses the best program, the best management. But today, right, left, and center, the church has allowed the leaven of the Pharisees to spread. The activity continues on the outside. We're doing the stuff, but the central thing has been just hollowed out. And as we see with the Pharisees, when we hollow out that central thing, being present with Christ, things get really messed up quickly. So we've seen already that on the liberal side, it's like we care for the poor and the oppressed 
but because we've missed that central thing, we end up celebrating sexual sin and undermining the very authority of God's word, which would teach us actually what is good. On the conservative side, a concern to protect power and institutions, and some of them which are very good, leads to a very um, a worldly acceptance of sin, like racism, nationalism. I think, as we read in our liturgy today, that the prophet Hosea can be helpful to us here. Hosea, uh, who was unf- uh, Gomer, Hosea's wife, was unfaithful, and she went to her lovers. She prostituted herself to her lovers, and she started saying, My lovers have gotten me these things. Look at what they have done for me. All the while, it's, it's Hosea, or in the metaphor, it's God who has done these things. And so we can say, The economy has gotten me my wealth. Our military has gotten me our security. My competence has gotten me this house. My great parenting has gotten me these well-behaved children. That was supposed to be a laugh line. (laughs) All the while, God God is there saying, you've... You've prostituted yourself. There's a, what, what Hosea calls a spirit of prostitution. And he says, my people are determined to turn from me. So they continue all the stuff on the outside, but the center is cut out. We see this in our time as well. I wonder if you're with me so far. We see that people don't leave the faith because they've dwelt in the presence of the Lord. They don't leave the faith because they've tasted and seen and said, he's not that good. But the crisis that we experience today is a crisis that we've made by our own hands because we have been unfaithful to Yahweh. We have turned to the things and we've allowed the center thing, the central thing that it was always all about to wither and die. Maybe you've heard some of these deconversion stories. There's this, re- this refrain that gets repeated a lot that really breaks my heart. People will say, I just couldn't do it anymore. Have you heard this? I just couldn't do it anymore. It's this idea that, that we're clinging on to something that becomes increasingly um, untenable because we look around and we say, you know what, if I'm after financial peace... There's a guy I can go to for that. If I'm after security, if I'm after wealth, do you see this? If I'm after the things, there are ways to get that. And I find that I'm clinging on to a thing that is empty. The presence in the center isn't there. And they finally say, you know what? I just couldn't hold on to that anymore. Okay, so do you remember the opening scene? This is all about spiritual formation through spiritual disciplines. Don't forget that. Keep that in mind. How are we getting to that, I wonder? So if we're in a time of exile and a time of judgment because we have been unfaithful, 
we experience this time that God has turned away. Or as in Samuel says, that there was a time at the beginning of of Samuel that, that the word of God was rare and there weren't many prophecies. So if we are in this time that's almost like a, one, a wilderness wondering, what does that mean for us? How can we be faithful to God who has led us into the desert because of our unfaithfulness? So I want to I wanna call us to consider today that the great task of Christian faith today is to look at this confusing and dark reality that's before us and to find a path somewhere between despairing and this defeated kind of clinging on like the one who will eventually say, I just couldn't do it anymore. On the one hand, and on the other hand, a kind of managing and controlling crisis. If we look at the decline and the situation we see in front of us and we say, how can we manage this? How can we get more awesome stuff? How can we be more relevant? How can we have cooler pastors with better hair or, um, you know, some hair? Uh, How can we create dynamic, immersive worship experiences that will rival what the world is offering? If we cling on to that, we will lose we will lose everything because we will lose the presence of God at the center. Consider, brothers and sisters, why don't we, in a moment of crisis, turn to prayer and relinquish control? So we're back at this climactic scene to talk about spiritual formation through spiritual practices. I want to call us to consider that the right posture in a time of wilderness or a time of desert where God has said, you want to worship those idols, you want to be unfaithful in that way, let me give you over to that thing so you can see what it's like to be ruled by a foreign nation. You can see what it's like um, to have that for your God. I want to say that that path between despair and control is an openness to the work of the Spirit in our lives, which we come back to again and again through regular, devoted practice of spiritual disciplines. To say it a bit more simply, the spiritual disciplines keep us open to the gracious presence of God, which we cannot control or manipulate, but it comes as a gift. So we are made temples of the Holy Spirit. It, that's ours. If you are in Christ, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. But the Bible tells us, as we saw in 1 Thessalonians, that we can quench that spirit. It's a flame metaphor, right? You can quench a flame. I mean, you can quench a thirst, I guess, but I think it's about a flame. The Holy Spirit comes to the early church as a tongue of fire, and we can douse that flame. We can kind of keep it hidden, or we can fan it into a great fire. And if you, if, if you feel today when you leave here that, that the message has been do more spiritual stuff, then you haven't heard me. I hope you haven't heard me. My one goal is that we would leave here desiring to be filled with the Spirit. Second, Paul writes uh, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 6. He says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. 
The goal today is to fan into flame that spirit which is ours as a gift, to not quench the spirit. And by the way, we live in a world which is a spirit-quenching world, that we are being formed into the image of that serpent. That's why it's so tempting to go back again and again, like how do we fix this? How do we control it? That's why our impulse is rarely to go to our knees and often to go to problem-solving. And so with that goal in mind, to fan into flame in you today and in me a desire to be friends with God, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to dwell with him like Adam and Eve walked with him in the cool of the day, I just want to end with a few thoughts about spiritual disciplines. Now, spiritual disciplines are, is, is a thing that like, people have written multiple books about. I'm not going to try to give you a primer on spiritual disciplines. The goal is to think about how can we practice spiritual disciplines, which brings us into the presence of the living God. So some thoughts about spiritual disciplines primarily focused on dwelling with God. So first of all, what are spiritual disciplines? Um, Donald Whitney in his book uh, on spiritual disciplines said, spiritual disciplines are those practices found in scripture that, are, that promote spiritual growth among believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are the habits of devotion and experiential Christianity that have been practiced by the people of God since biblical times. So in, in that book, uh, Donald Whitney covers these disciplines, prayer, worship, evangelism, serving, stewardship, fasting, silence and solitude, journaling, and learning. And at least one of those breaks his own definition of what a spiritual discipline is, but that's okay. Um, Another classic book on the topic of spiritual disciplines by Richard Foster, The Celebration of Disciplines, divides the disciplines into three big categories, internal disciplines, external disciplines, and corporate disciplines, things we do together. And it covers a lot of the same ground as uh, Donald Whitney's book, but it adds to the disciplines meditation, simplicity, submission, and celebration. So the Bible doesn't give us like a list. These are the disciplines. Um, but as most you know, good Baptists know, there are two sacraments. There are also two spiritual disciplines. Um, I'm just kidding. But normally when you think about spiritual disciplines, among the top of the list is prayer and studying the Bible. Um, so again, I'm not going to try to dig into all of these, but I want to call us to think about a couple of these disciplines in the ways that they can uh, help us be more like Jesus pattern our life after Jesus, the one who says that he is one with the Father, that we can be one uh, with them as well, with, uh, with the Father and the Son. So Jesus, let's talk about meditative reading of Scripture. The first discipline I want to look at is meditative reading of Scripture. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you pour over the Scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. I want us to be challenged by this today. Jesus is saying, you think you will find eternal life by studying the scriptures. But they testify about me. And you are not willing to come to me so that you may live. Jesus is saying that the Bible is not an end in itself. I mean, put that on Twitter and see what happens. The Bible is not an end in itself, but it points to Jesus. Do we read the scripture expecting to encounter Christ? On every page of this book, 
he tells his disciples in Luke 24, this famous like road to Emmaus encounter with Jesus. And he says, the, every, every page in this book is a testament to me that he fulfills the whole thing. And that is our challenge. Whether we're reading Job or Genesis or Ezekiel, we are looking for the living Christ who is revealed in all of it. And by the way, not to gain knowledge which puffs up. And that's why I say meditative reading of Scripture. We don't read Scripture like we read any other book. Other books contain truth. Other books, we might even say, are inspired in that sense of like, oh, it's so wonderful. This is the only book that is inspired by God to reveal himself to us. It is the only book in which we encounter, as a, in a kind of almost sacramental way, we encounter Jesus. I almost said, instead of meditative reading of Scripture, divine reading, which is the English translation of Lectio Divina. It's a very um, controversial topic, apparently. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't go by, like, when I look something up on the Internet, I'm like, oh, there's controversy. <laughs> Maybe that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> but divine reading is like, it's essentially saying that we go to the Scripture expecting not to gain knowledge, not to know more things, but to encounter God and to be transformed by our reading of Scripture. The second thing I want us to talk about is abiding prayer. There are a lot of kinds of prayer, and we could talk about many of them. But what we see Jesus doing again and again, the Bible even says, as was his custom, he goes to a quiet place or a a desolate place. He goes into the wilderness to meet with God to spend extended times in prayer with God. We also know that, by the way, that Jesus intercedes. We know that Jesus contends with God in prayer, but we also know that Jesus abides with God in prayer. This is essentially just carving out a time to pray in a way that just says, I want to be with you, God. And it is difficult. I've been trying to practice this spiritual discipline for a long time, and so often it feels like I'm just sitting here. But that is what it's like to pray an abiding prayer in the wilderness where God's word may be rare. And we come again and again and we say, come, be present with me. We say with the psalmist, the one thing I seek is to gaze upon your beauty and to dwell with you. So that's abiding, abiding prayer, which, which, which calls us to desire more than anything to be with him, to dwell with him. Um, the third one is uh, silence and solitude. Blaise Pascal has, this, uh, has said this, all, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. I think that's probably true. We see that Jesus goes off by himself to be silent, to be alone, uh, to, be, to be cared for by the angels. Again, this is something that has some controversy. There's fear that like what we're asking for is what we're asking in silence and solitude is is almost like some new divine revelation as if we'll just sit silently and then we'll be like I've heard a word from God. And that's not it at all. And and so I want to I want to add three things which are sort of not necessarily classic spiritual disciplines but they're thoughts for what it means to practice spiritual disciplines in our world today. And they have to do uh, in some ways with um, with cultivating this, this ability to sit alone and listen. And that is, uh, here, there are three of them, cultivating capacity for attention. 
Jesus calls us to consider the birds. Consider the lilies. He's saying, look around you and pay attention. And that means at least, at minimum, we have to have some boundaries around media and technology in our life. And that's not a legalistic statement that I'm going to prescribe that for you, but we have to do some sort of, some sort of digital audit of our lives to say, how distracted are we? Do I have the capacity to sit, to sit still and to pay attention? Or like, like David in Psalm 8, to consider the heavens. Con- cultivate a capacity for attention. Which uh, one philosopher has said, attention is the deepest form of prayer. In some ways, cultivating a, capa- a capacity for attention is cultivating a ca- capacity for prayer and for worship. Um, secondly, uh, develop what I'm going to call conscious indifference. I think Jesus is getting at this when he says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. We also know that Jesus came, he says, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he focused on 12 men that he called around him. That means there are spheres of of the world that are not our territory, and we don't care that much about it. (laughs) I mean, Hunter Biden, aliens, Trump's indictment. It's not that we're bad citizens and we care about these things, but we know that this isn't our home. And we cultivate a capacity to be indifferent to some of these things the newest season of whatever that everybody's talking about, we have to be able to say, that's not my world, and I'm not going to give my time to that. And finally, I've already mentioned this in brief, but we need to develop in this kind of um, time of exile and judgment, contending prayer. I feel like maybe this will resonate with you. I think it probably will, but there are times when we pray and we just hear God's silence so loudly. It feels as if folks who were formerly faithful are drifting away. Again, we've heard, we, I could rattle the statistics, but you've heard them about the rise of the nuns, uh, the decline of the church. I mean, especially if you're concerned about like the Southern Baptist denomination that has just been bleeding people. It's like, to be able to contend like David and like the sons of Korah and say, God, do you see what's happening? How long will you be silent? Maybe in your own heart, say, God, when I pray, I just feel like you're not there. And we come again and again to contend with God. And by the way, he invites it. It feels like it can start to feel wrong to challenge God, but he invites it. And he wants his people to say like Job, we want your presence here. To say like David, how long? How long will the wicked seem to prosper while the righteous suffer? All of this comes to, we have to talk to God like a friend even when we don't understand what that friend is doing. Say, friend, where are you? What are you doing right now? And this, 
fanning into flame the Holy Spirit within us through these kinds of practices of spiritual disciplines that bring us again and again to what feels daunting, like God's absence and contending that God would come here now and work among us, is our one and only church strategy. The only strategy we have is you and your transformed self, your being with Jesus in his word and in his church and in worship and in serving others, your being transformed into Jesus and then taking that transformed presence to shine it all around on your street and in your family and in your workplace. I mean, it's that or it's nothing. We will not, we will resist as much as possible the temptation to take up other things when it starts to feel like this might not work. To take up, well, maybe if we do this better, maybe if we manage this better, maybe if we control this better, will you commit with me, brothers and sisters, to say when it feels like this may not work, we don't manage and control, we don't take up that serpent's tools, but we get to our knees and we say, God, do something be perfected in our weakness. Or what we end up doing is carving out like a donut where we're just doing stuff and the center is empty. Where we're pursuing a kingdom with no king. And in the end, we'll be like the Pharisees who Jesus said, they're just like their father, Satan. They are children of Satan and they think they're serving God. May that not be so among us, but fan the flame of the Holy Spirit, and may we protect it. May we beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the whispers of the serpent that can sneak up on us even in our best intentions. And I'll confess to you, brothers and sisters, that even, even in preaching, there is a, a desire to control, a desire to say, like, this manuscript is the thing that will make sure that I don't stumble, that I don't fall flat on my face. And I, feel, I felt this week God inviting, as I was praying, God, I, I, I want to be your friend. And in my mind, I'm thinking, let me feel right now that warm, fuzzy thing, that, that closeness, which just comes with almost like an emotional wave. And maybe there's, it's like, let me feel that. And what I felt God saying was like, well, sometimes friendships are made by doing stuff together. Like, let's do this together. Like, don't do the manuscript. And I didn't as much. Trust me in that moment. And I wonder what that looks like to develop friendship with God, not by just saying like in the, in the closet, I want to feel good about God, but in our everyday life saying God has given us work to do people to win, and we can't do it. <laughs> it's like Adam trying to populate the world by himself. It's never going to happen. But if we say, God, you have given us work to do, and let's cultivate a friendship because we're going to take a risk, and we're going to try something. I'm going to talk to a coworker, and it's going to be weird, and I'm going I'm I'm to feel you right there with me, giving me the words to say, opening those doors. It's that or it's nothing, church. Let's do that together. Uh, let's pray. Father, you have given us your presence. Just like you made Adam and Eve in your image, you have made us a temple of your Holy Spirit where heaven and earth meet and you dwell with us.
I want to repent in my own life of all the ways that I've desired to control, to manage, to achieve some spiritual maturity, to do some spiritual work through my own competence, through my own strength. Help me to be like Jesus who trusted God all the way to the cross. Who, though he was made in the very image of God, did not seek equality with God as a thing to be gained, but humbled himself and went, was obedient to God, even to death on the cross. May we do all that we do in our own sort of pursuing spiritual growth and in thinking about the mission of the church to win the lost and make disciples. Will we do it trusting that there is a God on the throne who has been raised from the dead? That our, our strength has nothing to do with it and can, in fact, become a deterrent to you using us. When we think we have the competence to get it done, we can become children of Satan. God, may that cause fear and trembling, and may we pursue in our church and spur each other on uh, to spiritual growth through a commitment to your word, and not just knowledge about your word, but expecting to experience your presence in your word. May we become more like Jesus in pursuing times of silence and solitude, and we could add so many things to the list as we see Jesus feasting and celebrating. We see him call his disciples even to fast as the only way to cast out certain demons. We know that there are so many disciplines that bring us into line with who you are and what you've called us to. I think most of all I want to pray that our church would not have a spirit of holding on as if one day we might say we just can't hold on anymore because the pressure is too much. But day by day we would be conformed into the image of Jesus, transformed from glory into glory that because of the disciplines, we're not, we're not hanging on until we let go, but we are being more like Jesus, delighting in the God. who It's like, like, like springs of refreshing and living water. Make us more like you. Make us one with you. Let us abide in the vine. And because the roots of that vine are sure and true, we will be nourished and refreshed. God, I also want to pray for a harvest, that as we trust you, that, that, we, wouldn't, that we would see this, this, the narratives of decline and despair reverse. That like a tide that goes out, but the waters build up in the deep ocean and the tide comes back in. Would we be a part of your tide coming back in? And that right now we can feel, as you said, that you will roar like a lion and call people home. Roar, Lord Father. Please do these things among us. Help us to trust your spirit at work in us. And I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.